0: just can't beat that guitar riff, can you? Oh, man. Dire Straits, money for nothing. And this is our inaugural program, Personal Finance Live. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, this Tuesday lunchtime. We are moving across our programming, or our live programming anyway, to... Lunchtime's on Tuesday so that we can, or Tuesday and Wednesday so that we can give maybe a more convenient time for the people that we have who talking to us as well as uh, from your perspective as well. Just, and don't forget that uh, Personal Finance Live and our Rational Radio shows are both rebroadcast during the day and uh, later in the evening. So, all done with the formalities. It's a warm welcome now to Simon Lincoln Reader, who joins us from London. Where, just to give you some background on what's going on here, uh, we are going to hear from the United Kingdom, uh, from the Conservative Party, in just over half an hour. Uh, that the new Prime Minister of the country, the new leader of the Conservative Party, is Boris Johnson. We've got Simon Lincoln-Reader on the line uh, to us from London. I had a quote here uh, that is from Wikipedia, which says, Boris Johnson saying, My chances of being Prime Minister are about as good as the chances of finding Elvis on Mars, or my being reincarnated as an olive. Okay, so he didn't think he was going to be in this position, which he's in right now. Uh, Did you think it was possible?
1: I thought it was entirely possible, and I think that he is being characteristically slippery on uh, his prospects. I think that he's wanted this moment um, for for his entire life. Certainly those who were at Oxford with him, some of whom are friends of mine, agree, Um, in fact. If you go into Today's Spectator, there's a a wonderful article written by Lloyd Evans, who's the theater critic for The Spectator. And he has um, summed up Boris's um, behavior uh, for the last few years quite nicely with regard to these sorts of statements, these deliberate um, uh, humility, when actually it's more strategic.
0: Hmm. Sounds a bit like uh, prospective presidents of the ANC. Stay out of the Mm -hmm. contest for as long as you possibly can. Okay, well, the the, the, the RAND is strengthened against the pound, uh, which is an unusual situation. The pound has been under pressure, though, against all currencies. South Africans Mm -hmm. like to invest abroad. When you see a Boris Johnson running the U.K., what is the share price of the country likely to do, the British pound?
1: Well, I only – look, Alec, you know, we've been fed so much um, what people describe as project fear information, predictions of the economy that in the event of Brexit have, um, have failed to materialize. Um, granted, Brexit hasn't happened yet. If you recall, in 2016, there was no less than George Osborne, then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mark Carney, the Reserve Bank Governor, the Chamber of British Industry, all making these really, really terrifying uh, projections, which just not, have not come true. Now, what the sensible people are saying is that you, know, you, you can only gauge the impact when this happens. So let's look at October the 31st, the day of proposed Brexit, and what the sensible people are saying, I regard as sensible, are that the, brick, the pound is possibly going to level with the dollar. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the uh, the impact. Now, Boris Johnson's uh, premiership will it. Um, uh, improve that I I don't know, it's impossible to consider a scenario where Britain is not negatively impacted in some way by uh, the departure from the European Union Boris Johnson in charge Um, you know Alec to be honest with you the last two years have not been that bad, against all of those predictions I've just spoken, we have enjoyed a sound investment environment, there's actually been good growth compared to the other um, to, to Eurozone states um, and so, yeah, I think that, that as we get closer, we'll get an understanding. But you can't really tell from here
0: what is going to happen. Well, the pound at the moment is one hundred twenty four against the U.S. dollar. Uh, it was trading a month ago at one hundred twenty eight. So that actually means that it's strengthened by $0.04 cents as there is more certainty coming into the United Kingdom. But this, this, this Johnson guy – I read a biography, and perhaps the guy who wrote it didn't like Boris Johnson very much, but it was, he, he comes across as flaky, he comes across as arrogant, uh, he is uh, certainly not somebody who takes kindly to um, criticism or to advice. Is that really the kind of person that the Brits want to run their country?
1: Um, if I may ask, who is the author? Who is the author of that book? Can you recall?
0: That's very naughty because <laughs> I can't remember, but I'll pick it up okay. in a minute. No, I, mm. I was
1: just, look, he does have his enemies, and and don't forget that, Alec, he comes from a line of of leadership. He's Etonian, um, Oxbridge, um, into media as the editor of The Spectator, a long-time columnist of The Telegraph, and it's almost, a, you know, it's a very well-trodden path, that one that um, certainly, that you know, quarters of the left take exception to because, it, for all intents and purposes, it's an old boys club. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I have heard myself that he's scattered and his attention to detail uh, has been found wanting. A friend of mine worked with him as, uh, during his, uh, his 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 term as the foreign secretary, and he said he did an appalling job there, and uh, best characterised by the plight of this poor woman, Nazarene. Um, uh, Zadari Ratcliffe, who's stuck in an Iranian jail and has been for the past three years um, his gaffe there sent, almost certainly is responsible for her, for her situation and then a couple of other things that, that you can call him up on um, your question is is this the sort of right candidate you know, I don't know if there is such a thing as a, as, as a right candidate at the moment we've had Theresa May who's um, been under all sorts of criticism for her um, decision making. Um, I was looking, I, I wanted to see the likes of Steve Baker and Priti Patel as candidates for the Conservative Party leadership, but that didn't happen. Um, Boris is probably as close as you'll find to a um, Thatcherite free market leader. Um, Alec, you surround yourself with the right people who make the right decisions in terms of the economy. Um, I think that you can get through this. Uh, whether or not um, Boris uh, survives, you know, there's a, there looks to be a mutiny, um, which is something we haven't discussed, you know, yeah. mass resignations, possibly six um, uh, people, um, six former cabinet ministers um, going across to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, you know, he gets announced in now, in, in less than and 40 minutes, what happens to the rest of the party? These are things that will only uh, reveal themselves as today unfolds.
0: Uh, Philip Hammond, who was the MP of the place when we lived in the UK of Weybridge, uh, is one of those who will be resigning. He's the Chancellor of the Exche- Exchequer. The book is called uh, Boris, the Adventures of Boris Johnson by Andrew Gibson. I don't know if you know that one. It's the, it's the best read biography Uh, I see there's quite a number of them, so uh, interesting guy. There was a question here from Linda. She says, I was wondering if Simon thinks that Boris will get another deal for, for the Brits from the EU. I will bet almost anything that he would probably have to eventually take the deal offered to Theresa May, but he will try to sell it as something better. Your thought?
1: Yeah, that's an outstanding point. Um, I, I don't uh, Look, it, it, the negotiating team in Brussels is going to be shaken up. And whether Theresa May's deal was the result of concessions made by her appointed uh, negotiators um, is something that will also reveal itself. I, I look at the temperament um, of, of the, the, the team over there, the, the temperature of the, the negotiations with the European Union um, declaring that there will be no more uh, concessions. There will be no more uh, uh, aspects to the deal that will be revised or reviewed. What there is now will be. And um, that's a very good point. You, whether you dress up what Theresa May had as something else, then so be it. But also, you know, I think w- what you have to include here is that Boris has made a firm commitment that there will be a departure, including a no deal. Um, and, you know, people are not going to be. Um, You know, if people sense that uh, Theresa May's deal has suddenly got a new coat of paint, then there is the um, then there's the threat of the Brexit Party that they will possibly revert to. So there are all sorts of um, variables at play here.
0: Hmm. Uh, Interestingly, um, Boris Johnson did vote for the Theresa May uh, deal at the third opportunity, so he can't be too uh, much against it.
1: No, and it's you know, if we go back to two thousand and sixteen, a lot of commentators expressed great surprise when they saw Boris the morning he decided to support uh Leave because up until then they had considered that he was a Europhile. You know he, he speaks these European languages, he was for many years Positioned in Brussels as the um, correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, he comes from a Turkish lineage. His great grandfather was Turkish. You know that there is a lot of Europe in his bloodline, um, and so you know I think that that's, it's not um, it's not too far to say that, as Linda has, that there might be uh, concessions simply just wrapped up in a new in a new wrapper. You know.
0: Bur- uh, Alexander Boris de Fethel Johnson, 55 years old, born in the USA. So I guess he's got that in common with Donald Trump.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's gone on record before as uh, calling Donald Trump a clown. Obviously, that is all water under the bridges. They have a, a close relationship. And, you know, another thing which has really sort of played a, played a, um, a huge role in the lead-up to the announcement today has been Britain's um, relationship with, with America and the departure of the previous ambassador and the conditions um, upon which she departed have um, you know ha- have played a huge role in, in, in Boris's um, ascent today. They've, there has to be a better relationship with America. You have to see the ally um, over and above the character that's occupying the White House, and, you know, Britain's future, um, under the terms of a no-deal Brexit, rely hugely upon um, a deal with America. So, yeah, there is, is, you expect to see warmth um, in, in, in this relationship moving forward.
0: Simon, you are South African. You live in the UK. You clearly uh, make a living there now. Would you be investing more as a consequence of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister?
1: I would, yes. I think that there are, um, you know, Britain needs a huge infrastructure overhaul and you're probably going to see a huge amount of public spending in, the, in, the, in providing all the factors play into his hands. I think that this could be a sound environment for investment much more than Theresa May um, and all just depends upon uh, what, uh, how the environment looks leading up to and on the
0: 31st of October. Simon Lincoln Reader is our man in London and uh, giving us his insights on Boris Johnson, who's about to be announced as the next British Prime Minister. Interesting developments there, and Simon giving us some good insights. We're going to be talking a focused investment now on the UK uh, with Simon, Bro- uh, sorry, with Dan Brocklebank, who's the uh, UK head of investment for Orbis. Orbis is the partner or sister company of Alan Gray and then after him we're going to be talking to Paul O'Sullivan coming back home and uh, trying to unpack what the devil's going on with a public protector. Well, but first here's some Fireball.
2: came
0: You can hear me clearly, can you? I can hear you fine, yes. Excellent, excellent. Thanks, Dan. Great. Well, we're back in London now, and it's a warm welcome to Dan Brocklebank. Sure, Dan, I remember us talking, what's it now, three years ago, about the possibility of Brexit. Now we're just about ready to hear that the guy who led the Brexit charge Is uh, going to become the Prime Minister of the UK. I think the announcement is going to be made in about mm, 20 minutes or so. Let's just assume that Boris Johnson is the uh, the anointed one by the Conservative Party. What kind of, how does that affect the way that you guys at Orbis view investing in the UK?
2: Sure. And can I just say good morning Alec, thank you for having me back on. Um, Time has certainly flown since we we, we talked about Brexit for the first time. Uh, The answer to your question there is pretty simple. Um, Although Brexit is a a massive deal politically for us here in the UK, uh, from an investment perspective uh, as global investors it, it, it really doesn't make a huge amount of difference. The Brexit debate is is really a a sort of small pimple on the side of the the world economy uh, at the moment. So for our approach, it it doesn't make a big difference. Uh, Investors nowadays can access international markets very, very cost effectively. So there's no reason for even UK residents or, or UK citizens to be focused exclusively on the UK market. The UK market's only about 7% of the global market. So why would you want to constrain yourself to such a narrow section of the market, particularly when there's all this uncertainty around?
0: There there are a lot of South Africans, though, who've got an affinity for the UK. Perhaps they have British passports. Perhaps they have uh, kids who are working and living there. We know there's a huge South African contingent there. And, And they do tend to like to invest in the UK more than... Other parts of the world. I haven't done any, any direct statistics on it, but you, you get the feeling that they feel more comfortable there, uh, having their, their money uh, tied up there. If they were to look at it, are you saying then that, hey guys, the UK is only a small percentage of the global index, you should rather be looking global?
2: Uh, well, so firstly, it's nice to hear that there are, are South Africans with an affinity for the UK. It feels a little bit lonely at the moment in some of our negotiations here. <laughs> um, but I think the thing to be aware of, if, if you do just buy UK shares, that a significant majority of those businesses that you would end up buying are not really British businesses or, or limited to earning their profits here in the UK vast majority of UK listed companies are multinational companies with profits being derived from all around the world so even if something disastrous were to happen to the UK economy it's not clear that you could predict what would happen to the UK stock market in fact as counterintuitive as it probably seems uh, if something terrible happens in the UK sterling is likely to weaken and that would make the, the profits of those businesses that are international uh, more valuable and those share prices could well end up rising. So I think investing in the UK stock market because you want to invest in domestic British companies uh, is, is, a, is a flawed logic. But, but the UK market does offer you know, decent exposure to, to some multinational companies.
0: What about property, UK property?
2: Well, oh, look, I've been wrong about UK property for about 15 years now, Alex. So you certainly shouldn't shouldn't listen to me about about UK property. Um, it is uh, it, it comes under this sort of umbrella uh, of what I refer to as a, a sort of macro decision, um, whereby the, the the value of property is heavily influenced by. Uh, a variable, um, a macroeconomic variable. In in property's case, it's, it's interest rates. And who would have foreseen 10 years ago that interest rates would continue falling to the extent that they have done? And that has had a huge boost to the value of, of UK property. Now, at the same time, uh, we don't have enough houses. We're not building enough new houses for people entering into the country. So there is, a uh, uh, on, on some metrics, there is a supply-demand mismatch Um, And so uh, I think overall, it's a very hard call um, as to what the direction for UK property is. Um, The only thing I would say is that if people are moving to live in the UK, there's something uh, intrinsically satisfying about owning your own house rather than renting it. And so you can't necessarily always make decisions about whether or not to buy a property based purely on uh, your view as to whether or not it, it, it might make uh, a good investment if it's what, where you're going to be living mm. for a long period of time.
0: Dan, I know you guys are bottom-up. In other words, you have a look at companies first and then do the investment there without trying to try to guess the the, the big, big trends. But you've Correct. heard the point now about interest rates. They yes. just seem uh, extraordinary. Uh, there was a recent uh, African infrastructure fund that raised $650 million it was thrown, $1.2 billion was thrown at it, and the interest rate was 4.5% over seven years. Now, given that the area uh, that it operates in is, is high risk, you would have thought that 4.5% is hardly a decent return. But, but I guess in Europe it's even worse.
2: Well, yes. I, I mean, I can almost go one better to that, uh, that in that uh, last week the German government issued a 10-year bond and it was a zero-coupon bond which is uh, unusual but not unprecedented and when you issue a zero-coupon bond it means if you hold that bond you don't receive any interest the only money you get back is is the principal repayment at the end of that term and the way you would earn a return normally on holding that bond is by buying it for less than you get back at the end so they typically sell at a discount. And so you might say you buy it at 70 or 80 cents on the dollar and that uh, as it gets closer to redemption, the value would approach uh, the, the, the dollar. Now, this German 10 year bond uh, was sold with no interest payments, It was sold last year at 103 cents to the dollar. So people were willing to pay more than they would get back from the German government 10 years down the line with no interest payments down the, down, no, sh- down the line. Uh,
0: that is, that's insane. I mean, <laughs> has Mr. Market completely lost it now? What causes something like that?
2: Well, I, I mean, that's complex. I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I, I'm not sure. I, we, we could spend hours on that, and, I, and I'm not sure I really want to get into all of the reasons. I don't think I know all of the reasons um, behind that. Um, but th- there are certainly some price-insensitive buyers out there. I think the important thing to note with that is that that sort of distortion and that, that sort of pricing is highly likely to have had knock-on effects elsewhere in investment markets. You don't necessarily have to say what they are, but it seems impossible that one such, such a large portion of, of global markets could, could, could go through such an obvious distortion without it having knock-on consequences. And so as equity investors, Although we are bottom-up, we are, we are very conscious that, that there is a, a large potential distortion out there. And we do think we're starting to – we have been seeing for a while the effects of, of, those, of that distortion play out in equity markets at the moment.
0: So in other words, the, 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 or the, uh, the cost of money is so low that you just finding a place to put, put it. Uh, in the German case, you'll, you'll actually pay the German government. To hold your money for you and equities, by the same token, would have been somewhat inflated by all of this.
2: Yeah, I, I think broadly speaking, you can say there have probably been two effects with all of this uh, purchasing going on in the bond market. Some bond investors will say, These yields are ridiculous, I'm going to go and invest in, in equities instead, and so it will have boosted. Uh, the demand for, for shares over and above what it would have been otherwise. So equity markets overall have had some additional support uh, as a result. But probably more importantly, it's impacted the types of companies that have been bought by these sort of exiles from the bond market. And if you think about a bond investor that might have been comfortable owning, let's say, investment grade corporate bonds, who's also, who have also seen their yields c- compress. Uh, as a result of uh, as a result of all of this, if you used to hold corporate bonds and you say the yields are just too low, where am I going to look next? Well, okay, let's go into the equity market because it, it gives me the liquidity. What types of companies are they likely to, to look at first? Well, a dividend is the closest to the income interest income you might receive from holding a bond. And so the types of companies that are likely to be the closest proxy for a bond are shares in companies that are stable and have paid and have a long history of paying uh, dividends, preferably dividends that have risen gradually over time. So it's both the increased demand for equities, but also an increased demand in particular for stable companies with a good history of, of, of paying dividends. And so as we look at equity markets as a whole, we find that there are two interesting things. Firstly, we like the stocks we own. We think they're attractively priced. We can buy good companies at you know, often great prices. But we're also the, the flip side to that uh, for an active manager, when you're measured against a benchmark is you know, what are large portions of the benchmark that we don't own? And today we see large portions of the, the, the equity benchmarks out there that are comprised of these big mega cap companies that are are often great franchises, great brands, but which have been bought by equity investors for their dividend yield. And as a result, the share prices have been bid up to levels that we think are at best unattractive and in, in many cases, just downright expensive.
0: Mm, and you value investors, so I guess that also makes it interesting. Just before we go into into a little more on, on the kind of stocks that you are owning now and are wanting to buy, this seems to also distort lots of other things. We see WeWork as an example. Uh, most people look at WeWork and say that this business is losing fortunes. It isn't... Uh, doesn't have a business model that seems to have some kind of route to profitability, and yet it's about to do an IPO, which is sure to be very successful. Similarly, with something like Uber, and you could go on and on. How are you viewing that distortion, and what would, what would turn it around?
2: So, I, I think, uh, firstly, it's always worth remembering, as an, as an equity investor, you don't have to find many shares to invest in. Uh, In in our global strategy, for example, there are over 3,000 shares that are big enough for us to buy, but we hold about 60. So when you see a situation like that, which you think that doesn't smell right, it's perfectly uh, valid to put it on the too hard pile and just come back to it later or or, or really just ignore it. So in many cases, we we will take that Um, uh, and and we do that. I don't know what will I don't know what will turn that. Uh, your, your second question was what will, what will change that and I just don't know what will change it. Um, there are. Uh, it, it's always the unknown unknowns that cause the biggest surprises and I suspect it'll be an unknown unknown that causes sentiment in the market towards those types of, of, of companies to, to change dramatically.
0: But surely, Dan, if you are... Uh, the man in uh, Man on the Moon, having a look at the US market, you've got this company that is expanding rapidly, that has no route to profitability, and its owner, its co owner, has just cashed in, after only being around for nine years, $700 million in shares. You've got to be scratching your head and saying, hang on a minute, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah,
2: Alec, honest answer is I haven't studied it t- too mm-hmm. closely, so I don't, I, I don't want to comment. There may be issues that, that you, you're missing or that I'm missing. I'm, I doubt that you're missing anything there, Alec, but um, I certainly don't know the full facts. I, I, I can't really comment on, on, on that individual company. Yeah, I think just, just perhaps to play devil's advocate to you a little bit there, um, if you look back over the last really 15 years, there has been a significant shift in large portions of the economy, technology and and the the Internet and and all of the factors that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, has enabled significant changes to take place. And because the Internet is such a globalizing force, um, there are business models. We've seen business models emerge time and time again. It may not be the case with WeWork, but you've, you've certainly seen businesses which it has been very rational to be loss-making for large periods of time in order to lock up a market and then be very profitable at the end of it. I mean, you can look at, uh, there's no end of examples. So just to play devil's advocate, the fact that a company is currently loss-making, even when it comes to IPO, it may make that situation much more risky because they still have to prove the viability of their business model. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that business has no intrinsic value. And as investors, we focus very heavily on the intrinsic value of a business, and there are many cases, for example, where the reported profits are not a good indicator uh, of of that intrinsic value. Uh, And so, I'm I'm not I'm not in any way trying to defend that company you mentioned, but I I think it's important to remember that this is not a a value investing or value-oriented investing is not a mechanistic. Uh, you only buy companies on low price-to-earnings or low price-to-book uh, basis. It's about thinking about what a whole business would be worth if you owned it, and then saying, okay, what do I have to pay to get a portion of that business?
0: Got it. Where are you seeing value right now?
2: Well, I mean, we we see an, a, a number of different areas, and um, I think the, the big, just to come back to the point I made a little bit earlier it's almost easiest to say what, where, we, where we're avoiding. Um, and if you look at the last 18 months, which, have been, uh, which haven't been easy, um, uh, particularly uh, well for all value investors and particularly uh, uh, um, uh, for well, – we've had a difficult 18 months. But the minimum vol- uh, volatility shares, so low volatility shares over the last 18 months, have uh, increased, uh, an index of those stocks has increased by 15%, the S&P 500 has increased by 13% and yet, and yet the MSCI world has increased by 7%. So we're seeing this surge in big cap low volatility stocks and naturally as a result, probably no, no, no surprise, um, we're finding it relatively hard to find ideas in the US. And we're finding more opportunities in emerging markets. Um, if you look at just high quality shares, so companies that have high returns on equity um, and, 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 uh, uh, and, and typical quality metrics, they, quality shares trade at a premium in the US of about 46% to quality shares outside of the US. So we're, we're drawn, no matter which way you look at markets, we tend to be drawn to opportunities uh, outside the US and in areas of the market that, that have a bit more volatility than um, the average stock.
0: So what's the biggest holding in your portfolio right now?
2: Biggest holding is a company called NetEase. Uh, it's a Chinese computer game manufacturer. Uh, it, uh, it trades on it. Well, so it, we, it's a company we've owned for over 10 years, so we know it very well. Uh, uh, to, on headline metrics, it trades uh, at, at valuations that don't look particularly attractive, something like 25 times earnings. But what's, what's fantastic about this business is the, the core profitability uh, of, its fran- of its main franchise. The business is generating over the last 12 months about $1.8 billion in profits out of its core business. Um, and we think that can continue to grow Probably at a low low teen, low double digit rate for the next few years at least.
0: Well, you've given us Hmm.
2: Well, what the business is doing. So, if I can just say, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't show up in the in in the in the metrics because the company is reinvesting about a third of those profits in three new uh, uh, tech businesses which each of which has the ability to create significant value and could potentially be as valuable as that core business itself on a a five- or ten-year view. So um, looking through the business, we find it very exciting.
0: Dan Rockerbank is the head of UK Investing at Orbis and giving us some insights there, sending us off to go and have a look more closely at NetEase. Well, we're coming home now, and uh, I'm sure you'll recognize that from the next little track. Coming up in a minute, Paula Sullivan. Hello, Alex. Hi, Paul. You ready to go?
3: Yeah, yeah. Good to go.
0: Perfect. Okay. I'll just turn the music down and, and we're on.
3: Good.
0: Well, as promised, Paul O'Sullivan joins us now. Um, Paul, you've been busy, <laughs> to say the least. But let, let's just start off with the public protector. I know you've been boxing a little with her. Uh, the latest developments there are welcoming to you.
3: Well, I think, you know, the constitutional court judgment yesterday has created an enormous problem for her. Um, And I'm shocked and horrified when I heard that she'd gone public with saying that the constitutional court judgment presented future public protectors with a dilemma in that they could not act without fair favor or prejudice. But the reality of the situation is that it only uh, presents future public protectors with a dilemma if those public protectors intend to act dishonestly, which is what she's been found wanting in. Now, we've issued and we're going to publish her uh, 12-page letter addressed to the Speaker of the National Assembly, dated the 5th, of July and I've never seen such an arrogant piece of work in my whole life and I'm just left wondering why the public protector would feel the need to dictate to Parliament as to how and why they cannot remove her from office when in fact the Constitutional Court and Parliament are the two bodies in this country um, which, which one cannot dictate to.
0: Hmm. But just, just, just go backwards. How did she get into this position in the first place? Because we had a public protector who was globally renowned, Tuli Madunsele. She gets uh, awards all over the world. People think she's fabulous. And the person who follows her up, it appears as though people think she's the opposite.
3: Well, I'm of the opinion that it doesn't appear that way. I think it is that way. You know, I sent her a a nicely worded email yesterday, and I explained to her that she's got herself into the position that she's in. You have to remember, this is the lady that a week after she joined the Public Protector's Office, um, I think that was in late 2016, So the the dust hadn't settled in the offices. And she went around and instructed everybody to tune into ANN7, the 24-hour news channel owned by the Guptas. And the previous incumbent said, well, she would have never told people what news channels to watch. And I think that set the path. You know, at the end of the day, I've accused her of being a Zuptoid or a Zupta appointee. And the bottom line is that she is. She was appointed by Zuma. Now I think she's, her appointment was part of a master plan at disabling and controlling and protecting the Zuma elite. And I think that's, that's now starting to come out with the uh, reports that she's been issuing. I mean, this rogue, this so-called rogue unit report is, it's laughable. I've never seen such uh, poor investigative work in my life. And the latest report that she issued last week, in connection with the Basasa, the so-called Basasa donation, that report is also laughable. She finds that uh, Cyril Ramaphosa intentionally misled Parliament. I mean, uh, despite her having made that finding, it's clear from the reading of her report that he didn't intentionally mislead Parliament. He made a mistake. Um, And it was an error, not an error of judgment, but an error of understanding what he and his knowledge was of the circumstances surrounding the relationship between his son and Basasa. So there was nothing there where he willfully misled Parliament. In fact, when he realized that he'd misinformed Parliament, he then issued a letter to the Speaker Uh, I think two days or three days later, which was read out in parliament because he was overseas setting the record straight. And then you've got to look at her overreach. How does a public protector when the regulations and the act hasn't been passed and, and, and properly gazetted yet, how does a public protector reach into the area of political party funding when the, um, you know, nobody else in the country is subject to
0: that reach. Mm. But, Paul, and, and, I, and I hear the you and those of us who uh, do study the news and read the judgments, as I, I did last night on the Constitutional Court, I mean, you want to talk about a damning judgment, I would urge anyone to go into business and just go and read that judgment on a public protector who lied under oath, and, and, and. But there is still an enormous amount of damage that's being done. I've had two uh, engagements in the last 24 hours. One, a senior executive at a very big uh, company in South Africa saying, Yeah, Cyril's in trouble and the public protectors got him on the ropes, and uh, you see, he, d- he didn't tell the truth to Parliament. And another one who was saying that by us putting the side of the story, which seems to be the truth on this News, that uh, we're being unbalanced and we should be providing the public protectors' side of the story. Uh, I'm in a dilemma from, from a business perspective. Are you also?
3: No, I'm not in a dilemma at all. And I mean, I've got no problem with any journalistic or media organization presenting both sides view. And I mean, you know, I've invited comment from her and her legal advisors um, prior to posting an article on our website where we're going to refer to her as a zooptoid. Um, and, and I've given them 24 hours. So later on today, if they haven't come back to me, I'm going to post it and say, well, you never came back to us. Now, the bottom line is, I suppose, with media, any media outlet, you're entitled to invite people to give their version of events. We're satisfied that if you add some of the rogue, the rogue judgments together, um, it paints a very nasty picture, and I'm left wondering in the three years that she's been in office, why she hasn't gone after, with the full knowledge of what people like Nkwemeza and Zuma and the state capture entities were up to, why she didn't go after a single one of those that were engaged in state capture, but instead has chosen to go after those that are engaged in defeating state capture. And the left, uh, I'm left with the conclusion, is that there, there's an agenda there. And I mean, I think I, I, I spent the best part of the day on Sunday with Solly Maiappa, the um, SACP uh, Secretary General, and she threatened him with court action because he referred to her as a hired gun of Zuma. But I think the problem is her own conduct is making her look that way. And she's not really doing much about it other than insulting the constitutional court and now insulting Parliament by sending them a 12-page letter saying that she's not accountable to anybody except God.
0: Hmm. Paul, just to move across a little to the investigations that you did at Transnet, uh, and it seems as though Forensics for Justice is always uncovering uh, lots of hojos underneath a number of stones. There's been an, a, a, a knock-on um, uh, from that. On the one hand, uh, perhaps you can just unpack it all for us, because it was an investigation into a, uh, a contract that, would, that was granted to an Italian company by Transnet, which has been overturned by the Transnet board as a result or or as a consequence of the investigations you guys did.
3: Yeah, we issued a report, I think it was either October or November last year. I think we'd been busy looking into it. We got a tip off um, earlier in the year, probably February or March or somewhere around then. Um, And we didn't really apply our minds to it very much until we saw a media release that this very large contract had been issued to a purported consortium but when we started investigating we found that the, um, cons- one of the consortium members was an Italian company called CMCD Ravenna who are based in Italy and we found that on the contract documents they had 1% of the contract but the reality was they had actually the whole of the contract and in their financial account that they published in Italy, they stated that they had 100% of the value of the contract, which I think was um, 430 million or 340 million euros, something like that. When we did the figures, it was over 4 billion rand. So we carried out an in-depth investigation and we found that there was a corrupted relationship between them and certain Zuma Acolytes who we consider to be just commission conduits. Now, we prepared a, an in-depth report and we supplied it uh, without prejudice to Transnet. In fact, when we supplied it to them, we gave them a period of time in which to do something or us. And they promptly suspended the contract and we then backed off because we felt that there would be no need for us to uh, engage further so we backed off and let things go their own route but then what happened was tr- the CMC derivative people they bounced back they started bad-mouthing me bad-mouthing forensics for justice and they went a step further and they in our opinion they infiltrated Transnet and Transnet were almost at the point of reinstating the contract when we found out Um, and we realized that there'd been another report produced which did a hatchet job on forensics for justice. So we bounced back and we said, hey, we've got this hatchet job now. There's our response to that. And guess what? We've been doing some more research on CMC de Ravenna. We've been as far as Gdansk in Poland and Nairobi in Kenya and Uganda so we did a lot of research, and then we contacted the authorities in those places, and we provided them with the results of our findings in South Africa, which went a lot further than the report that we'd supplied to to transmit. And yesterday, Nakhal, um the, min- the finance minister in Kenya was arrested and charged with
0: corruption. Just slow down. The finance minister in Kenya. Yeah. So it's like their version of Tito Mboweni. Uh yes, correct. Charged um, with arrested and charged with corruption. Wow.
3: Yes, he's been arrested and he's been charged with corruption. He's not yet been released. I think they they um, are arraigning him in court um this morning. So hopefully um you know I'm not in favor of anybody sitting in jail pending a trial. So hopefully he'll be released today, but um, more interestingly is the fact that um, uh, an arrest warrant was issued for Paolo Porcelli. And Paolo Porcelli was the previous country manager uh, in South Africa. And it's the subject of our criminal investigation. And he's a person that we've requested the police uh, to seize his passport so he can't flee the country. Well, he's already gone, so I doubt if... I doubt if we'll, we'll see him back here. But the bottom line is, um, thing, the things are starting to roll. In fact, they issued a list of 28 people or entities um, in the media yesterday, the the um, Director of Public Prosecutions in Nairobi. Um, and number eight on the list is Paolo Porcelli, the Director of CMC de Ravenna. Now, in our opinion, this is this is mind blowing because it shows that we were we were on the right tracks. And I understand. I've spoken to the chief of the police in Uganda. They call him the inspector general. So I've spoken this morning to the inspector general of the police in Uganda, and I understand they're moving to have arrest warrants issued as well.
0: Extraordinary. So you investigate something at Transnet. CMC de Ravenna, a big Italian company that was in the middle of the corruption there, is exposed in Kenya. The Kenyan finance minister gets arrested. They issue a warrant for the arrest of of the former country manager of CMC de Ravenna. This is good news if you look at it from a broader perspective, Paul. Investing in South Africa, in a clean South Africa, surely is is then, as a consequence of all of this, going to be a viable proposition. But... How big are are the forces of darkness, the the Porcellis and his like?
3: Well, yeah, I mean we have to overcome them, and I think the thing is, you know, if one turns the clock back a few years, we had um, major corruption scandals globally with companies like British Aerospace, um, Elf, you know, the, the French oil company. They were apparently passing backhanders all over the place, and I think so. What what's what's happening now is In South Africa, in particular, global investors, non-third-world investors, want to invest in a country like South Africa on first-world terms. And when they realize, when they get here and they start playing the game and they find unnecessary delays in their applications to do this and that, and they realize they have to pay bribes, they pack their bags and they vanish. Now... A sad story. I went to a furniture company that imports and distributes furniture, and they're in the process of closing their doors. I went to them yesterday, and we went to get a sworn statement from the owner, and he said, Paul, you know, the thing is, a lot of my work was government work, but I, can't, I don't get government work anymore. I can't supply them with furniture anymore because I'm not prepared to inflate my uh, quotations and invoices and give kickbacks to the people that want me to provide the invoices and the quotations so I said but then why don't you write that down and let us take that up for you he said no nah, I'd rather not get involved you know I'm 67 now I'd rather just go on pension and let somebody else deal with it well we need more people to come forward and say this is corruption I'm being faced with this predicament where if I don't pay a bribe, I can't get business. And if that is the situation, act, 30, uh, act 12 of 2004 is quite a robust act. You come to us, you explain to us what's going on, we'll take up the cudgel on your behalf and we'll, we'll go after these people. And I think that, you know we have to clean the act up. It has to be done. And I believe Cyril is the right man to do it.
0: Mm. Well, let's hope that... Uh the citizen or the active citizenry starts continuing or or starts getting momentum, Paul, because I'm sure I know there are a lot of people who look to you um, with great admiration and in the work that you're doing, and it doesn't look like you're stopping.
3: Um, Yeah, I don't think I can stop. You know, I was going with the idea of Going on pension, but you know, um, somebody told me the other day, Paul, if you do that you won't know what to do. So I'll just carry on with what I'm doing. Um, we are making a difference. We're getting told all the time that we're making a difference. You know, when you get the the poor, the very, very poor people, and I had my boardroom full uh, two three weeks ago with people from a community property association they were penniless they didn't have any money their land has been stolen from them by a mining company and we've taken them on and i think when you see the the happiness on the faces of people like that it makes you realize that there is a bigger there's a bigger picture and there is a bigger cause and we have to follow it i if i had More people donating, I could employ more staff and spread my wings a bit further. But we have to focus on what's within our reach. Um, And then, of course, we provide the services for corporations who want to uh, run a clean ship as well. And we're coming out with some new investigative tools now, which enables us to look at a company and highlight the issues and places where the fraud is taking place.
0: Paul O'Sullivan, Forensics for Justice, South Africa's ACE investigator, who has done so much great work over the years. It's always a privilege to have him on the program. Tomorrow, in uh, our Rational Radio, which is at the same time between 12 and 1, we will be talking to Cynthia Stimple. You might remember her. She is the whistleblower at South African Airways. You got extremely shoddily treated. We'll also be talking to another whistleblower, Jean Lorena. So, the O'Sullivan spirit appears to be spreading more and more. We'll be finding out uh, what Cynthia is up to now. She's been out of South African Airways for a couple of years. Uh, Jean Lorena was giving testimony last week uh, to the competition tribunal where Unilever is on the hook for hundreds of millions of rands. Uh, Jean Larine has taken an, an awful cost for uh, his standing up as a whistleblower. But uh, we'll have all that whole story uh, tomorrow as well. Plus, uh, lots of good news stories as well. We don't just talk about the bad stuff here on Business. News. We try and make sure that uh, we all know that there is a future and it's bright. Uh, But sometimes you just have to work hard To get through the current morass Well thank you for being with us On Personal Finance Live Our first program today We're playing out with the OJs